0: Hi all. Just a quick bonus update for you all on some of the fusion stuff that we've covered previously. This is a Cold Fusion bonus episode. So almost as soon as I'd finished recording the Cold Fusion episode, there were some super interesting headlines that arose from Cold Fusion in the modern era. Doesn't it always seem to go like that? Well, rather than make that episode even longer, I thought I'd just record a quick bonus episode to describe the news story, and then I didn't get around to taping it until now. So it's a bonus episode that I hope you'll enjoy. The headline is this. For the last four to five years, Google have been funding a group of around 30 researchers to look into the claims made by cold fusion scientists, a full 30 years after the first results from Fleischmann and Pons were discredited. Hearing that Google had even put a small amount of money into this was a bit of a surprise to me, given how long people have looked for this incredibly physically unlikely phenomenon to no avail. But I suppose if you're Google and you turn over $100 billion a year, you can afford to invest in lots of projects that you might assess only have a 0.01% chance of success. If cold fusion could somehow work, after all, you would expect to make an awful lot of money, which is why so many people pursue this chimera, even as it continually vanishes before their eyes. So the headline is that their studies concluded, and they found absolutely no evidence whatsoever for cold fusion in any of the forms described by its advocates. The paper, which described some of the work they've been doing, was published in Nature, under the title Revisiting the Cold Case of Cold Fusion, and this is the abstract, quote, The 1989 claim of cold fusion was publicly heralded as the future of clean energy generation. However, subsequent failures to reproduce the effect heightened scepticism of this claim in the academic community and effectively led to the disqualification of the subject from further study. Motivated by the possibility that such judgment might have been premature, we embarked on a multi-institution programme to re-evaluate cold fusion to a high standard of scientific rigour. Here we describe our efforts which have yet to yield any evidence of such an effect. Nonetheless, a byproduct of our investigations has been to provide new insights into highly hydrated metals and low-energy nuclear reactions, and we contend there remains much interesting science to be done in this underexplored parameter space. End quote. Well, we could of course end the episode here, because they've said we did the study and we didn't find anything, but that would be no fun. So first off, you might feel like this is a little bit of a waste. I mean, why are Google spending money on things when they're flogging this parrot that is quite obviously dead? And it's still dead. But I don't necessarily think it's quite true for a number of reasons. I mean, first off, if cold fusion research is totally ignored by the scientific mainstream, and no attempt is ever made to check any of the proposed setups outside of the cold fusion bubble, then there's a concern that it won't ever be debunked, and pathological scientists can claim that there's a vast conspiracy that is preventing people from investigating their studies correctly. So, this claim is... Fair, and it holds up to some scrutiny, but I suppose the problem is that regardless of how often you debunk these things, there'll always be some people who remain unconvinced. Of course, a true pathological scientist will ignore any study that contradicts their beliefs. It all ends up being part of the conspiracy, right? So you might argue that this isn't really the case, but maybe there is a a set of floating voters out there, and when it comes to persuading the unconvinced, or indeed the people who might invest large amounts of money, these kind of studies are important. After all, if you don't know all that much about energy, and someone comes to you saying that they have this revolutionary energy source and they just need someone to invest in it, and then you go and find there's a US Navy study that investigated the same thing and found nothing, then you might be more inclined to think, okay, this person's probably a crackpot or even a scammer. But furthermore, in the course of investigating cold fusion, the scientists did make some material advances that will be useful across different fields. For example, they developed calorimeters, heat measuring devices that would supposedly measure the signal, seen by cold fusion investigators, that work under a unique range of extreme conditions of high pressure. Essentially, you can read between the lines of this article and see that scientists aren't really responding to any new development in the study of cold fusion, but rather just to avoid the idea that we were too hasty in dismissing it after 1989, after the phenomenon proved impossible to reproduce reliably, and many of the results were traced back to measurement error and sloppiness. The condemnation was so harsh at the time that there was a certain taboo around studying this kind of reaction, and getting funding in light of the controversy would prove difficult for a while, although you will remember from our episodes on the subject that Fleischmann and Pons themselves, the original cold fusion experimenters, were employed for years by private companies to look for the same thing, and many cold fusion replication endeavours in Japan also carried on for several years after the main debunking had taken place. The scientists point out that one of the main issues with the cold fusion experiments that have been pursued both in the original wave in 1989 and in isolated groups ever since, was the lack of any reproducible experiment that was supposed to demonstrate the phenomenon in question. When something bizarre is discovered in physics, something unexpected that contradicts our previous understanding of the world, for example, the interference of electrons in the double slit experiment, which confirmed wave particle duality, you generally have one standard experiment that's described in sufficient detail that other groups can reproduce it and see the result for themselves. Standards are important in science. If they're not rigorously controlled in experiments, then every group ends up measuring a different type of error, something different, and no one can agree on whether they really contradict each other, or indeed really confirm each other's results. In the case of that original Fleischmann and Pond experiment, much of the early confusion arose from people trying to reproduce the initial experiment without much detail, which led to a slew of contradictory results. Similarly, if an independent cold fusion researcher finds something, but doesn't specify the experiment in sufficient detail that others can reproduce it, well then it's impossible to confirm or refute. Which, of course, is exactly what a charlatan wants, right? I mean, perpetual motion devices are rarely particularly open about how they're designed either, in case someone tried to build them, and they didn't work. For the Google-funded researchers, then, one of their first aims was to determine what, what actually is the best cold fusion experiment, so to speak, to conduct and then set up a standard experiment that would have the best possible chance of observing this effect, if indeed it did exist. But to avoid setting off a furore of headlines saying things like, Google is now pouring money into cold fusion and causing a big crisis in the scientific community, or just making Google look bad, the researchers didn't announce or publish any of the work until this publication at the end of May, which is sort of a review of the finished project. Instead, they sort of collaborated discreetly on the project across several different research institutions. So what did they look at specifically? The researchers noted that, since there's no universally accepted theory of how cold fusion is supposed to work, they essentially had to try and identify the most scientifically testable claims of the cold fusion investigators over the years. Now remember, this is a pretty murky field with lots of people making lots of claims. Some of these claims don't even make sense. To quote a famous physicist, they're in the realms of things that are not even wrong. They're just incoherent. But if you're going to test if an apparatus or setup works, you need to be able to reconstruct it. So someone had to go through all of the cold fusion literature that's been introduced over the years and try to make sense of what was being claimed. And they isolated three main claims that people were making. The first one. If you load up electrodes with large amounts of hydrogen or deuterium, you will see anomalous heat and neutron production and cold fusion. So this is essentially the original Fleischmann and Pons experiment. Metallic powders heated in a deuterium-rich environment produce excess heat, That's the second claim, which had also been claimed by some of the later cold fusion researchers who came after Fleischmann and Pons. And finally, the third claim is that pulsed plasma discharges, i.e. the type of quick plasma bursts you can produce with sparks of electricity, produce tritium and other anomalous and unexpected materials. So these are the three most concrete scientific claims that they think, well, we can set up an experiment to test these claims and see whether there's anything in them. And the scientists note that perhaps some of the most scientifically valuable outcomes of their work come from actually trying to develop techniques which do things like this in a consistent way. For example, you'll remember that the original Fleischmann and Pond's experiment had these uh, palladium electrodes which were sort of jam-packed with hydrogen. And the idea was that supposedly you have these hydrogen nuclei that are all close together in this palladium lattice. And the fact that they're being squeezed into this lattice might push them together enough to lower the energy barrier for fusion. That was the sort of vague idea behind the cold fusion experiments. But in the process of creating metals like palladium jam-packed with hydrogen, which turned out to be very difficult to do consistently, these scientists actually made some advances in material science of how to create these substances in a stable way, so that the claims can be properly tested on a similar material every time. In particular, given that some cold fusion experiments call for high pressure and high temperatures before they can work although of course not as high as the kind of temperature and pressure you'll find in a hot fusion tokamak it's crucial that your measurements remain accurate across a range of different conditions. For example, you recall that some of the neutrons that were supposedly detected in early cold fusion experiments were essentially just byproducts of the apparatus not being designed for use at the temperatures and they were measuring the neutron fluxes that they thought were being measured in the experiments The apparatus was designed to measure neutron fluxes far higher than that, and they were basically just getting background noise. Another important thing to keep constant, which you may remember from the cold fusion episode, is the way that you measure heat and energy in the experiment itself. For this, the calorimeters, which measure the heat production in the experiment, had to be calibrated very precisely, resulting in measurement uncertainties of less than 2% according to the experimenters. Given that some fusion researchers have claimed to see up to 10% excess heat, or missing heat, you'd expect this to show up with their experiment, but out of 420 samples attempted, not one that the scientists demonstrated illustrated any excess heat whatsoever within the margin of error. And this is of course very important, because if the effect you're looking for is actually fairly small, it's only 10% of what you're measuring, and your measurement error is 10%, then you can't really say that much statistically significant about what you're measuring. It could just be random chance. In another experiment, the researchers bombarded palladium with deuterium nuclei, which were accelerated using electric fields. So this is quite similar to the kind of fusor device which we talked about in one of the Thermonuclear Takes episodes, the kind of thing that's constructed by various hobbyists and even teenagers. The scientists note that you can see some neutrons produced from fusion between deuterium nuclei when you do this. And this makes sense, because you've got a very dense beam of nuclei that you accelerate to very fast velocities, and you're slamming it into one plate of palladium. But this only causes a very, very small number of fusion reactions. Measuring the small flux of neutrons you get is challenging, which is a continued problem with these low energy nuclear interactions because the reaction rate drops off exponentially with temperature, essentially because the energies, and hence the probability of the nuclei getting through that repulsive electric force between them, the Coulomb barrier, as we call it, um, between them, this, this drops off very quickly as temperatures get colder. So if, temperatures are just on the verge such that a very very small fraction of the nuclei might fuse then you'll get a very low reaction rate. But the scientists found no evidence of any extra tritium production when bombarding the palladium with the deuterium which would have been another possible example of the results that cold fusion researchers had come out with. As we've discussed before small numbers of neutrons don't necessarily mean you're on the right track to fusion. You can not really achieve a source of net power gain necessarily. I mean it happened in Zeta, the pinch machine in the 1950s. They saw neutrons that weren't even the product of actual fusion, and in fusels, the sort of hobbyist uh, accelerated electric beams that shoot at each other, you can have small numbers of fusion reactions in the beam, but the reaction is so inefficient that you'll never get any net power out of such a system. So the researchers didn't discover anything particularly new or unexpected, and ultimately I think they debunked quite a few cold fusion claims, but they did develop some better measurements and experimental techniques and explore some of the alternatives, and they did justify their work in the conclusion of the paper. They said, quote, A reasonable criticism of our effort might be, why pursue cold fusion when it has not been proven to exist? Our response is that evaluating cold fusion led our programme to study materials and phenomena that we might not otherwise have considered. We set out looking for cold fusion and instead benefited contemporary research topics in unexpected ways. A more direct response to this question, and the underlying motivation of our effort, is that our society is in urgent need of a clean energy breakthrough. Finding breakthroughs requires risk-taking, and we contend that revisiting cold fusion is a risk worth taking. We hope that our journey will inspire others to produce and contribute data in this intriguing parameter space. This is not an all-or-nothing endeavour. Even if we do not find a transformative energy source, the exploration of matter far from equilibrium is likely to have a substantial impact on future energy technologies. It is our perspective that the search for a reference experiment for cold fusion remains a worthy pursuit, because the quest to understand and control unusual states of matter is both interesting and important. What do you think of the Google-backed experiment? I don't really know what I feel about it. I mean, I think I ultimately feel that it's worth investigating these kind of edge cases in science, providing it's not too expensive or costly to do so. If there's a 1% chance of a very high reward, then it's worth devoting some resources to pursuing it, providing you devote proportionally much more effort and funding, towards more mainstream and likely to succeed approaches, particularly when this research probably costs a tiny, tiny fraction of the amount that we throw away and waste on other things each day, the amount of tax evaded on an annual basis, all this sort of thing. This is certainly the justification that they would use for their research. A tiny, tiny chance, sure, but if there did turn out to be something to it, it would be an extremely high return. But you may well disagree, and it probably depends on how close you think the probability of succeeding is to zero, and how much you feel like this research distracts from your own personal favourite energy project, which isn't being pursued properly. So that's all I have to say on this uh, bonus episode in this study of cold fusion. You've been listening to Physical Attraction. You can find us on the web at www.physicspodcast.com. Plenty of things there. You can find the Patreon, uh, where you can subscribe and get more bonus episodes for a uh, low, low fee. In fact, you're only charged when a bonus episode comes out. So I believe if you subscribe now, the first few episodes will be free. So that might be a good way to uh, persuade people into it. If you don't want to subscribe to the Patreon, you can make a one-off donation via the PayPal form on our website, and there's also a contact form on our website. You can send an email about anything, topics you'd like to see the show cover in the future, comments, criticisms, questions, concerns. I respond to almost all of the emails, except the ones that claim that they've found some sort of cold fusion device themselves. Our theme music is by Melody Sheep, and you can find all of their work on Bandcamp, and they also have a Patreon that you can back, and it's very worth doing so. Melody Sheep are excellent. Until next time, then. Take care.